As we were singing that song in the first service, I thought of something that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church when he said, As your faith increases, so will the sphere of our influence among you. So the effectiveness of Paul's ministry was directly connected to the faith of the people that he worked amidst. So the effectiveness of the preaching of the word of God in the next 40 minutes or so will in very significant ways be affected by a community of faith here. And so as I preach in faith and stand firm in faith preaching, I would invite you to listen in faith. Your faith may make a difference to the word of God being effective in somebody's life in this room that you may not even be aware of. Father, I pray therefore that I will preach in faith and our people will listen in faith that you will indeed open up heaven, open it wide. For we know that every gathering of your people is an intersection of heaven and earth, of time and eternity. For your word says we have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, to thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, to Jesus, whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, because he's the mediator of a better covenant. So pray for us, Lord Jesus. May heaven open up and touch us in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, a Christian researcher and author, George Barna, wrote a book called The Frog in the Kettle. It it drew upon a very well-known phenomenon that if you drop a frog into a pot of boiling water, it will just leap out. But if you put the frog in cold water and slowly turn the heat up, the frog will die over a period of time. Barna was using that as a metaphor for how the church in North America especially has basically been so affected by the culture that it is dying without even being aware of it. As we continue our study on Isaiah, we've come to two chapters, 47 and 48, that are appropriately, I could call the frog and the kettle chapters in Isaiah. As you know, and I've been reminding you regularly, Israel and Judah in exile have been struggling with two questions. Is God powerful enough to overcome the Babylonians who are the mighty empire who had conquered them? And is God able to overcome our own sin that got us into this mess? And from chapters 40 all the way, God has been comforting his people and repeating repeating to them that both of these things are true. But they both come to a climax in 47 and 48, where each of those questions gets an entire chapter. And as we look at it, 47 is Babylon, which is the kettle. 48 is Judah, which is the frog. And as we look at these two chapters, written 2800 years ago, you will see how relevant they are to our times as we try and address the question, how should we as the church live in the community? Babylon in the Bible is a code word for the world apart from God. And so Judah represents us, the people of God. So we, the people of God, are in the world. How should we be relating to Babylon? That's how relevant these two chapters are. Chapter 47 is all about the kettle, Babylon, and it begins with a very graphic portrayal of her humiliation. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil. Strip off your robe. Uncover your legs and pass through the river. He he paints a picture of uh, a pampered, self-indulgent princess who has known no difficulty in her life, now suddenly subject to a life of harsh labor as a slave girl. That is a metaphor for the humiliation that is awaiting Babylon. And she is going to be humiliated specifically because of her arrogance and pride. This is her root problem. Listen to these verses from chapter 47, verse 8. Now therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come upon you in a moment, in one day. In spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. 
your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray and you said in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Many characteristics of Babylon. First of all, she was a lover of pleasure. Secondly, she was incredibly secure in herself. She boasted that she would neither know widowhood nor have her children die. In those days, widowhood was a powerful symbol of a person who was left without the basic necessities of life and to have no children meant no security for the future. And Babylon was absolutely secure that this would not happen to her. She was overweeningly self-sufficient. Twice it says in this text, I am and there is no one beside me. Where have you heard that in Isaiah recently? <laughs> that was God. God was speaking about himself and Babylon said, no, that's me. That's me. There's nobody beside me. And fueling all of this was their wisdom and knowledge. And there were many dimensions to this wisdom and knowledge that fueled this security, this illusion of impregnability and pride. Notice the last word in there, you will not be able to charm away the judgment that's coming. The Hebrew word that is translated charm carries with it the idea of seeking early. So you might want to think, for example, of uh, how scientists today are attempting to build an early detection system on coastal cities to make sure they can detect tsunamis early on. That's the kind of idea. There was, they prided themselves on the fact that they had an early detection scheme. And what was that early detection scheme? Their sorceries and their great power and enchantments. Babylonian astrologers and priests spent a huge amount of time attempting to connect events that were happening on earth with two sets of physical phenomena. They would study the heavens and try to correlate what was happening there with what's happening on earth. And in their sacrifices of their animals, they would look at the intestines of the animals and to try and correlate with the various ways the intestines were coiled with what was happening. Well, you can imagine how complex that would be. Seventy cuneiform tablets have been found that had all these details written down in and they labored. They said, you have labored from your youth on this. So that was the second thing. Early detection, because they could interpret the times through astrology and through telling the omens. And then, of course, they had their uh, counselors. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth. As those who save. Uh, secondly, I forgot to mention, they, it was also their uh, ability to control evil spirits. Their sorceries and their enchantments along with astrology and uh, the discernment of omens also included magic to be able to harness the power of the spirit world. So these were the three things that they said. We have early warning systems against anything that comes against us. We can harness the spirit world to work on our behalf and we have all kinds of ways to discern what's going to happen through astrology and through omens. Therefore we are completely secure. Nothing will happen to us. You know what God says? In one moment... In one day, in one hour, you will be judged. You will not be able to charm it away. All your early warning systems are going to fail. There is no powers of darkness that you can control through your sorcery that is going to save you from me. And by the way, your astrologers are not going to be able to tell what's going to happen. It's all going to happen so fast and so quickly. Cyrus took Babylon without any difficulty. They went to sleep Babylonians. They got up Persians. That's how quickly it happened, historically. And for that, God says, you're going to be judged. And that's their helplessness. He said, none of these things are going to work for you. You are proud, 
in all of these things, fired by a knowledge and wisdom, you are impregnable, you think, and you are secure and lovers of pleasure, judgment is going to come to you in one moment, you will be completely helpless and the picture of judgment is described in this other metaphor of a fire. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. And look at the irony here. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. Don't think you're lighting a fire to warm yourself on a winter evening. This isn't a cozy fireside chat. This is a fire that consumes. It doesn't comfort. So that's Babylon. And headed for judgment. Now as I said, Babylon in the Bible is a code word for the godless world. And you reflect upon the world in which we live in, every single description of Babylon 2800 years ago applies almost unchanged today. First of all, they're lovers of pleasure, especially sexual pleasure. If you follow politics south of the border, one of the big shenanigans these days was precipitated by a Georgetown University female law student named Sandra Fluke, who claimed, amongst other things, that the compulsory healthcare system should provide her with all the contraceptives that she needed, and she estimated she would need $3,000 a year worth of contraceptives. Some other smart aleck lawyer figured out that, that that roughly translates into three liaisons per day. Now, I don't know the math, but I do know this, that $3,000 a day for that kind of stuff underlines like almost nothing else can the intoxication with sexual pleasure that characterizes our society. And then there's invincibility. Just like Babylon, they say, look, I am and there is nobody beside me. The American human ma Humanist Manifesto, written in 1973, amongst other things, said this. We affirm that moral values derive their source from human experience. Ethics is autonomous, that means I decide, and situational, I decide again. Needing no theological or ideological sanction, meaning nobody else tells me. Human life has meaning because we create and develop our futures. That's modern day language for saying, I am and there is nobody beside me. Just like Babylon. And they are sustained in this by a confidence in their wisdom and knowledge, just like Babylon was. Whether it's the wisdom of a modern mindset that says that science and reason will take care of everything. Or whether it is a postmodern mindset that is highly suspicious of science and reason. But trust instead in a smorgasbord spirituality. That includes astrology and all kinds of other things. Very, very sympathetic to Babylon. Babylon, by the way, was the source of modern day astrology. The, the signs of the zodiac got kind of filtered through Greek thinking around 3rd century BC. So we have all the Greek names for it. But it basically started all the way in Babylon. And the goal behind this fascination, whether it's with the modernist security in science and reason or the postmodern security in a self-styled spirituality. It's exactly the same as that which drove Babylon 2800 years ago, controlling my future masters of my own destiny. That's the driving force. We're called to surrender to God. We're called to get our directions from God. We're called to live obediently in the moment and leave the future to Him, as opposed to this mindset that says, no, I create and determine my own futures. Lovers of pleasure, totally secure, Secure in their knowledge and their wisdom. And persecutors of the church, just like Babylon had captured Judah and was very cruel. Babylonian exile, if you read in the book of Second Kings, you will find subjected Israel and Judah to unbelievable atrocities and pain. The world today persecutes the church. Far away from us, in countries like Iran, 
to we have been praying these days the world has been praying for pastor Yusuf Nadarkhani and uh, Christian solidarity worldwide call themselves the voice for the voiceless has been encouraging a global month of prayer from March the 12th to April the 12th for his uh, release if you want some information on that you can pick that up we made a few copies of that and I'm also aware of a Pakistani lady a Christian woman who has been sentenced uh, to death for supposedly blaspheming uh, the prophet Muhammad even one of their own courts uh, have decided there was more instigated by sectarian uh, factors rather than any real offense now closer to home we may not see it in these in your face harsh manifestations but there is a steady encroachment upon freedoms to worship christ just this past week i heard about a new law i don't know whether it's law yet or it's going to become law in the united kingdom where it is now no longer allowed to wear a cross if the cross is visible and a british nurse who's been doing that for 30 years has been told you either hide the cross remove the cross or you lose your job and closer to home nasa national aeronautics space administration science reason wisdom last year they fired a senior project manager because he happened to believe in intelligent design happened to share that with some of his colleagues and distributed a few videos dvds on that so babylon today is indistinguishable from babylon of 2800 years ago and they are headed for the same judgment there is a fire coming that is not for their comfort but for their consumption that's god's word on babylon that's the kettle it's time to take a look at the frog chapter 48 now if you were in judah having subjected you been subjected to the tyranny of babylonian capture and you read in isaiah 47 or you had a community leader get up and expound isaiah 47 to you i can imagine what your reaction would be memories in those parts of the world you know even today run back centuries <laughs> and this was within the living memory of some of the people they probably said that's great bring it on i can hardly wait for babylon to be consumed by that fire look what they did to us and to our people that would be a totally understandable response <laughs> they were just completely sandbagged by chapter 48 <laughs> they were not expecting what isaiah now tells the frog not the kettle so that's beginning by taking a look over there chapter 48 hear this o house of jacob who are called by the name of israel and who came from the waters of judah who swear by the name of the lord and confess the god of israel but not in truth or right for they call themselves after the holy city and they stay themselves on the god of israel the lord of hosts is his name they were self confident too completely self confident not in their wisdom and in their knowledge but they were confident in the orthodoxy of their faith notice what it says here they called themselves by the name of israel they came from the waters of judah they swore by the name of the lord they confessed the god of israel they called themselves after the holy city they stayed themselves on the god of israel they got the right god unlike the babylonians but what does he say not in truth or right confidence in their orthodoxy but a life and a heart that was completely dead towards god that was not what they were expecting look at the way he describes it because i know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass he's not talking about babylon anymore he's talking about his people because i know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass you have never heard you have never known from of old your ear has not been open for i knew that you would surely deal treacherously and that from before birth you were called a rebel now these are overlapping metaphors 
but they are com- six of them are piled one on top of the other so God's people would not miss what he was saying to them. First of all, he calls them obstinate. And at least one nuance in that word meant a temperamentally difficult people. You know how we say about someone, oh, so-and-so is hard to kind of get along with, you know. Temperamental people. <laughs> that was the meaning behind the word obstinate. Then necks of iron. You know what necks of iron are like? They don't bend. That's a metaphor for an unsubmissive, rebellious spirit. Then brass forehead. You know what a brass forehead is like? Impenetrable. Nothing gets through there. My mind's already made up. You can't change me. Unopened ears. Don't listen to God. Unteachable. And then he caps it all by saying, you were rebels from before birth. <laughs> you can imagine the surprise. Me? We're just like Babylon. The frog's been in the kettle for a long time. It's dying. They'd got influenced by Babylonian culture. But praise God, there's a second surprise coming. <laughs> You see, sheer logic would demand that if Judah was just like Babylon and the judgment that was coming upon Babylon was a fire that does not warm or comfort but consumes, then logic and justice demanded that Judah get the same fire. Now what she deserved was a fire that doesn't warm or comfort but a fire that consumes. And that sets it up for the second surprise because that's not what she gets. For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. (laughs) Babylon got the fire that consumed. Judah gets the fire that refines. But why? Why, you ask, since she was guilty of the same thing? Since the kettle had fried the frog. And she was marked by arrogance, self-confidence. And by all those metaphors that describe an unsubmissive spirit. The answer didn't lie in Judah. The answer was entirely in the makeup of God. He says, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it. For my own sake, just in case we don't get it. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And it, he's applying it in at least two ways, both of which are glorious. The obvious one is, I'm not going to share my glory with Babylon. By the way, they didn't conquer you because they were powerful. I sent them. And by the way, when Cyrus conquers Babylon, it isn't because Persia is powerful. I raised him up. So I'm not going to share my glory with those two people. And then this is the beautiful surprise. He says, and I'm not going to share my glory with your sin either, Judah. Your sin will not have the last word I will. That's my glory. You know, the glory here is the glory of his all-conquering mercy and forgiveness. And even his people's sin will not stop. Remember when Moses prayed, Lord, show me your glory. If we didn't know how that story ended... And we were asked to imagine what would happen next. What would God do if we answered the prayer, show me your glory? Well, if we knew the story of the Apostle Paul, we might think something like that happened. When the glory of the risen Christ eclipsed the brilliance of the midday sun, and you have to go to the Middle East in the summer to see how bright that sun is, at 48 degrees centigrade. And its glory was eclipsed and the man was struck blind for three days. We would expect something like that to happen. Instead, you know what God says to Moses? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. 
I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. That is His glory. The, the, the glory of His mercy and the glory of His goodness. Judah deserved a fire that consumed what she got. Was a merciful fire that refined. Because God is merciful. And God is gracious. And God is good to His people. So her judgment was a fire that refined. And so he invites Judah to respond. What does he say? He said, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first and I am the last. Draw near to me, hear this. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Go out from Babylon, free from Chaldea. Chaldea is another name for Babylon. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it out to the ends of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the desert. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. What is, what is his invitation to them? First of all, there are at least ten references to the verb to listen or to hear. He is speaking to a people, again, of an unsubmissive spirit. Blocked up ears. Brass foreheads. Necks of sinew. Rebels from birth. He says, come listen to me. And he said, Israel whom I call. Notice, earlier on it began with, they call themselves. It doesn't matter what we call ourselves. It matters what God calls us. I call you Israel. That's not what you call yourself. I belong to you and I belong to Israel. I call you. So listen to me Israel. And pay attention. And he says go out from Babylon and flee. Now you have to say well that's why command anybody to do that. If I was in prison and I was suddenly set free. Do I need to be commanded to leave? That would be a no brainer right? Well not quite. You see. First of all it has been quite a while. When exile finally ended, it was about 70 years. So everybody 70 years and younger had never been to their land. And unlike the Babylonians who were very cruel, Cyrus had a very benevolent policy towards the people that he conquered. And so life was not all that bad under Persian captivity. And so here's the question that faced Judah. Why should I take an 800 mile journey through difficult, dangerous terrain to go to a country that I've never seen that my ancestors... and Left 80 years ago, goodness knows what that mess that country is like. Why should I build a temple whose glory I never saw when I could be comfortable here? That was why he said, go. When the time comes, go. Your destiny is to build a temple and worship. Sadly, if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, you will find that very few people went. And therefore, to encourage them, he tells them, look what I did in the Exodus. I gave them water. I gave them food. So I will protect you on that journey. So that's, that's the meaning of these verses. For them to call. So what he did for his people. As opposed to Judah. He refines Judah for the sake of his glory. And he invites Judah to listen and flee to Babylon. When the time comes. Okay. Time to come over here now. And we will find. That the church at large. Not any particular subsection of the church, like Raxdale Lions Church, maybe. But the church at large in North America, at least that's where we live. Just as Babylon of today is exactly the same as Babylon of 2800 years ago, the church of today is no different than Judah, the frog. The same two surprises wait for us. So how do we relate? How, do, how does the church relate to Babylon, the world today? The first thing that this text spoke to me about was specifically... You don't judge them because we're like them. The, the man who 
took Sandra Fluke to task most publicly was Rush Limbaugh, the conservative radio commentator. He did it in language that most of us would not use. But I suspect if we are honest, the same intuitive response of judgment is what rises up within us in most cases when we are confronted with something like that. And God says, stop, because you're no different. Pleasure is still a number one idol, even for the church in North America. Limbaugh himself, two years ago, when he came back from a vacation in the Dominican Republic, was caught with two dozen bags, two bags full of Viagra tablets. Why did he need them all in Dominican? Not all that different from Sandra Fluke. A liberal commentator who was engaging some dialogue on this quoted statistics on Christian university students on the US, US, USA college campuses and the statistics for premarital sex among them was exactly the same as the rest of the population. And even for many of us who may not have problems in that particular area, how many of us in Andrew Murray's famous phrase have sought to combine a comfortable hope for the future heaven with the minimum amount of sacrifice and involvement in this world and maximizing comforts here? We're no, less, we're no less committed to pleasure, the church as a whole. And how about our self-confidence? Our self-confidence may not be in wisdom and knowledge, but like Judah, our self-confidence is often in our orthodoxy. I have lost count of the number of funerals that I've attended, where the individual in question hadn't darkened the doors of any worshipping community for decades, showed absolutely no signs of any real, reality of spiritual life inside, but some anguished relative would say to me, oh, 46 years ago they made a commitment to Jesus. Meant nothing then, it doesn't mean anything now. How about the holy city? No, no, we don't stay ourselves upon Jerusalem, although some people get quite worked up about Jerusalem, but... Our holy city is the membership of our churches. I'm an evangelical. Nowadays it's just as fashionable to say, I'm not an evangelical. Don't lump me with them. I'm reformed. I'm Presbyterian. I'm Catholic. I'm whatever. I'm orthodox. Well, in the meantime, reality is, the necks are still strong as iron. The head is still brass. The ears are still unopened. I, I am grieved at the amount of time I come across situations where Christians are deplorably ignorant of the word of God. They do not make financial decisions on the basis of scripture. They don't make career decisions on the basis of scripture. They certainly don't make relational decisions on the basis of scripture. But oh, they prayed the prayer. We're self-confident in, an, in a dead orthodoxy. That's why we don't judge Babylon, because we're just like them. First of all, God's judged them, right? The fire is coming. The, the, the society we live in is under judgment. But we're called in the first instance by chapter 48 to look at ourselves. And so instead, what do we do? We confess. Rebels from birth. Huh? Who likes that? 
And yet David, in Psalm 51, when he was confronted with the sins of adultery and murder, he cried out for mercy. He, he was glorifying this God. Be merciful to me, O God, is how the psalm opens. According to the multitude of your loving kindness and your tender mercies. And then before he confesses any specific sins, he says, I was born in sin, in iniquity did my mother conceive me. He dealt with original sin. He said, I'm a rebel from birth. And the amazing thing is, the amazing thing is, David when he confessed that, was already in a covenant relationship with God. Second Samuel chapter 7, which happened four chapters before his sin was where God made this glorious covenant with him. Said there will be a king forever, a descendant forever, a throne forever. You will be my son, I will be your father. This was a Christian, if you want to put that. He was someone in a covenant relationship with God, needing to pray, I was born in sin, and sin did my mother conceive me. We can never lose sight of the fact of what we were by nature. And by the way, if there is one person like that here, who has never begun a relationship with Jesus, this merciful kind, this, this mercy that has been lavished upon us by Jesus. If you want to appropriate that mercy and glory in that mercy, you must begin by coming to a point where before that Jesus, you abandon all programs of self-improvement, all trust in your own abilities, especially religious abilities. And acknowledge to him that in his presence, you are a rebel from birth. You have a forehead that is like brass, you have a neck that is like iron. You have an ear that is completely stopped up. Then you are ready. Then he pours out his mercy upon you. But for the rest of us, for whom that has happened, this is to be a lifestyle. A repentant lifestyle keeps us humble and keeps us from judging others first. Letting God take care of that part. And then we not only confess sin, we confess specific sins. We had time earlier on in the prayer to do that. I want to come back again to the issue of idols. You say, what, again? I mean, we started idolatry last September and we're still on it. Yeah, that's because Isaiah hasn't let us forget it. Throughout these chapters, he's been hammering away at that sin. And Ray Otter in his book uh, on Isaiah says it so beautifully. He says, Isaiah has lingered <clears throat> over the problem of idols. He says he doesn't want to move on until we understand that idols are basic to our daily lives. They are so obvious to us we don't see them. The frog is in the kettle. We don't see our culture. Our culture is what we see with. The frog is in the kettle. We are influenced in ways we don't notice. The frog is in the kettle. We have problems and never understand the real cause. The frog is in the kettle. So Isaiah wants us to think about this until we see with new clarity. We need to think and pray about this until our emotions lock on to God Himself. And I've been doing this all week long. Because I have sensed afresh this week that, that I need to have my emotions locked on to God as the sole, the sole source of abiding satisfaction. And when our hearts do find that God is what we really long for, then we are released from idolatry and are caught up in true worship that will never end throughout time and eternity. So, confess both our innate sinfulness, the rebelliousness from birth, and the individual sins of idolatry. And then, then we worship. Now, throughout Isaiah, we've been, he's been painting a huge picture of God, especially from chapters 40 on. For several weeks now, we've just been trying to paint as big a picture as we can of God. That's one dimension of work glory. We glory in His hugeness. But today, 
we are invited to glory in His mercy and His goodness. That's why we sang earlier on, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His love endures forever. Christ is risen. Sin is broken. It doesn't have the last word. Mercy does. Goodness does. Faithfulness does. And we want to glory and worship our merciful Jesus today. You know? I mean, can, what else can we do when we are told our sin will not have the last word? He will. For the sake of His own name. For the sake of His glory. That's what allows us to take the weakness that Sheila talked about. And say, yeah, something can be made out of that as well. Because you are merciful and you are good. And then we are called to listen. Just like Judah was. But there is one difference. Judah was told to flee Babylon. Because in the Old Testament. There was no evangelistic mission. The mission was one of holy, a holy community. A worshipping community in the midst. So they said you get back to Palestine. Jerusalem. Build a temple, worship me. So get back, was the agenda. You and I today, you don't flee from Babylon. We live in Babylon. That's where we're supposed to live. Instead, we're supposed to bless Babylon with grace and mercy. That's the different call. Not judge, God will take care of that. But every opportunity that we have to be channels of that mercy. So, if high school kids, Babylon is your grade 9 class. University student, U of T is Babylon. Or Arendelle. Or whatever. You live in any neighborhood, name it. That's Babylon. You go to work every week downtown Toronto someplace else. That's Babylon. That's where we live. That's Babylon. And in that Babylon, you and I are called to be channels of grace and mercy. Because we have found grace and mercy. I'm not making this up. Paul writes in Titus. Which is probably an astute commentary on the application of Isaiah 47 and 48. For the grace of God, there it is, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to bring salvation for everyone, including Babylon, who is under judgment. But it trains us, first of all, to renounce ungodliness and worldly pleasures and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. In other words, to be holy in Babylon. I think uh, it was... uh, Leonard Ravenhill, I think, who said, the glory of God is that he takes an unholy man out of an unholy world. He takes that man or woman and makes them holy. He puts them back in that unholy world and keeps them holy in that world. That's the power of the gospel. So that's the first thing that happens. Grace comes. It means, get out of the kettle, frog. But then, then, he says, look at our attitude to Babylon. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That's what He says. He says, salvation has come for everybody in Jesus and it happens two ways. First, he purifies the church. First, he purifies the church. So that the world takes notice that these people are actually different. In our midst, they are actually different. This boiling kettle is not able to affect this frog. And then that very difference, rather than make us look down our noses upon them in judgment, looks down up, or learns to look down upon them in love and say, I want to introduce you to the grace and mercy that I have found in Jesus. 
and you know my experience and i'm not an evangelist like my brother sam my evangel- my experience with babylon i had a lot more of that when i worked as ramik energy of canada than i do now in this bubble christian bubble that i do my work in mostly then i discovered this babylon as a group always laughs at you any individual in babylon is always open for mercy and grace i've never known one of them to resist grace and mercy and my wife does this naturally in shopping malls talking to cl- clerks all the time you know she's a channel of grace and mercy and they just open up and respond now it's not easy because babylon is not always as i said is increasingly hostile so sometimes you are misunderstood often we are rejected and therefore god promises exactly the same refreshing that he promised judah he promises refreshing and strength in the pilgrimage for them it was a literal refreshing and on the pilgrimage to go back through a dangerous country back to build the temple for us it's refreshing and strengthening in babylon to be channels of his grace and his mercy so as the worship team comes back and leaves us again in the focus on god on these dimensions of god and jesus on his love on his mercy and on his refining work in our midst i would invite you to use the words of this song as a vehicle to reflect upon what god has been saying to you there may be as i said maybe even one person here or maybe more who said i have never yet bowed my neck to jesus ever i never called myself a rebel from birth i wouldn't have dreamt of calling myself a man with a forehead or a woman with a forehead like brass or maybe today is the day and if so do it bow before him if you need help there are people waiting here to pray with you and then others of you you probably need to say wow i've been in the kettle for a long time i haven't even known that i'm actually seeing through my culture and not at my culture maybe you need like david to come back again and say have mercy on me o god i was born in sin and i i acknowledge my vast ignorance of the word of god for all practical purposes my neck has been unbowed my ears have been unstopped and my forehead like brass have mercy upon me and yet there may be others who have not those issues but who say you know frankly i have been judgmental i have not been a channel of grace and mercy in my conversations with people and maybe god is bringing somebody to your mind already in your places of babylon where you want this week this month as god provides opportunity to be a channel of mercy and to be a channel of grace so just listen the invitation is to come and listen so he can speak to you every place where your forehead is hard may the word of god penetrate it this week every sinew in your neck that is like iron may the potter's hand soften it gently until submission becomes a delight and every aspect of your spiritual years that are clogged up with audio junk from all around may that voice for which your whole being was made <laughs> penetrate that and may you with augustine be able to say a little bit your voice surpasses the abundance of my treasures give that which i love go in jesus name